Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome lovers of product. Today I'm here with Adam Jackson, co-founder of Brain Trust. Adam, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, sure. Eric, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, so I'm a, uh, a software engineer by training. I studied computer science at Vanderbilt University and then right out of school moved uh, here to San Francisco. And that was, I'm an old man now. It was about 16 years ago. And I'm sort of like a kind of a lousy engineer turned entrepreneur. So I, I moved out here and actually, so Brain Trust is my fourth venture backed endeavor, all marketplaces, all in different categories. Uh, so when I got out of here, I started an e-commerce marketplace that allowed people to shop online and for locally available products. And that was acquired by Intuit. My second marketplace was called Driverside, which connected car owners with mechanics who had capacity for them almost in real time. Uh, we grew that into a national marketplace and were acquired by Advanced Auto Parts. Then in 2012, I started a company called Doctor on Demand, which is a now uh, the country's largest video telemedicine service that grew into a, a very large enterprise healthcare company and really required the talents of what I would call a real manager. So I stepped out of day-to-day operations there four years in and then got to come back to my kind of true passion, my first love, which is deep tech. And uh, I got into blockchain kind of full-time at that point and helped start a, a hedge fund along the way called Cambrian and became obsessed with this idea of marketplaces being owned by their users. And that's that's where Brain Trust came from. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig into that in a minute. But tell me, you know, for marketplace companies, what's the attraction to marketplaces? Oh, I, I just really love having to build a company for two different customers. So you're getting punched in the face on both sides instead of <laughs> in SaaS, it's just one punch. In consumer, it's just one. But uh, marketplaces, you have two customers you have to serve. So, yeah, I mean, it, it obviously like, challenging to build. Once you build them, they're incredibly valuable, right? I, I just love the network effects of these businesses. And, um, you know, it's a real joy once you get them going. So, you know, obviously big challenges, like you said, you, because you have you have two customers, you have two sides you have to build demand for, right? Because if you only have one side kicking and the others doesn't exist, you know, the marketplace uh, inherently falls apart. What have you learned or how has building marketplace companies changed over the last, you know, well, four companies? Like, how has that evolved over time? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think in a lot of ways, you know, on, on the financial side, these web-enabled marketplaces have become more and more sort of financially extractive, right? And we're seeing that play out in the gig economy, right? Where Uber drivers can't stand Uber, DoorDashers can't, and restaurants can't stand DoorDash, et cetera. But, but then on, on the product side, and, and I know, you know, that's, much more, uh, you know, the focus of, of your show, like product just has to keep getting better and better and better. And, and you have to really delight both sides or you're just, you know, you're, you're just not in the game. So I, I think, you know, the, the product experience has just come so far for a lot of these marketplaces as well. Yeah. So if, if there's a product leader out there, you know, or an entrepreneur starting a company that's a marketplace these days, what advice would you give them? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it sounds a little basic, right? But, you know, building things that users absolutely love and starting with them on UI design, right? So, you know, implementing stuff is not hard these days. It just, that's just the part that takes time. It's, you know, starting with an interface either on Sketch or whatever, and, and really getting lots of users through it. And, when they get stuck, like really digging into why, like, what did they expect to see there? How, like, what is their mental model of what you're offering and build around that instead of trying to jam them into yours. Cool. Now, one of your experiences, doctor on demand, you know, Dr. Phil, tell me about that experience. Well, this, this is a crazy story. And I, I love telling this story to product people too, because it's, it's a bizarre kind of path that we took here, but we've had a successful exit of driver's side to advance auto parts. And I was sort of like taking a little bit of time off and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And the only thing I, I knew I wanted to do next is build a consumer brand. My first two companies actually were failed attempts at consumer brands. They're, they're consumer brands that you know turned into B2B or, or B2B2C, which is always what you do when you have to pivot to money. And so I knew for my third one, I was like, I just want to build a consumer brand. I want to build something that delights people, that solves a real problem, and that makes people's lives better. Consumers right? Not businesses. And I got a call from a friend um, who's actually one of the founders of Nextdoor, the neighborhood app, called me, their, their longtime friends, Sarah and Nerov. And they said, hey, we're connected with Dr. Phil down in LA. And he and his son, Jay, have this great idea for an app. It's like urgent care on your phone. And I was like, wow, that's a cool idea. I'm like, I've never really been to the doctor. I've only like only been to urgent care once. Like I just all I know about it is the healthcare consumer experience sucks and there's so much room for improvement, right? So like, you know, that, and you have Dr. Phil who reaches 35 million people a day uh, through his TV show. I'm like, man, those are pretty good ingredients, right? So big audience built in and a big consumer problem to solve. So we got together, we started the company. I started, I was our founding CEO and Jay and Phil are co-founders and you know, the idea was simple, build a, a video medical app that um, was easy to use. And then we'll talk about it on the Dr. Phil show. And that's what we did. And the the irony is none of us have any medical background whatsoever. So we, you know, we, we got some great doctors on board, great chief medical officers and a staff of just incredible physicians. A lot of, we seated with a lot of ex-Stanford or current Stanford physicians, but we, we started from scratch. First principles thinking on the interface, right? So you just come up, there's one button, see a doctor. It would walk you through the kind of the pre-visit questions. And we just started as simply as possible, tested the heck out of it, ripped out a lot of the crap you see in doctor's offices today that are kind of nice to have data collecting things that don't necessarily have to be there. And then, you know, made a really delightful follow-up process. We were the first ones to do HIPAA compliant encrypted video for uh, video chat. Now it's pretty ubiquitous, but this is in 2012. And we just like, just made a delightful consumer experience. And the thing just blew up in the app store. And if you looked at all the reviews, it was just, you saw two sentiments break through in the app store. It was, this was so easy to use. And that doctor was so nice. Right. So it's like the interface just had to get the hell out of the way. So the nice doctor could just do her job. And we grew really quickly. And um, now it's the largest service of its kind in the US, I believe. Yeah, no, interesting story. And and how do you deal with the I mean, I can definitely see like making something easy to use, making it a pleasant experience, because those are problems that a lot of consumers have had with visits to doctors, dentists, healthcare professionals in general. Part of the complexity that I would think is there is regulatory issues, especially telehealth. How did you deal with that? Was that a, a big hurdle? Uh, how do they deal with that 
well, I guess today, a lot of the COVID stuff has been rescinded, so to speak, but telehealth regulatory issues seem like that'd be a, a big constraint to taking it to market. It was huge. Yeah. It was, you know, a giant barrier to entry back then. You know, our, our in-house counsel was, I think, employee number eight or nine, which you know, most startups don't bring a full-time lawyer in that, that early. It's before the Series A, I think. And so, you know, when we started, it was a regulatory kind of gray area. But the good news was it was better than telephone. There were a lot of doctors practicing medicine over the phone with no video. And, that, and video is just better, right? It's obvious. You can see more. You can diagnose more. You can see other maybe potential comorbidities. So, you know, we, we certainly had our share of conversations with state medical boards, and, and those weren't always, you know, as straightforward as I would have liked. But the point was, like, you know, the, the app was secure. It was good doctor, good board certified doctors practicing good medicine. And we weren't, you know, we, we drew a bright line around anything that was just like, you know, legally, regulatorily, and probably morally abject, like, you know, prescribing controlled substances, which ironically is totally fine now post COVID. But back then when there were rules, we went to great pains to follow them and, uh, and it worked out for us. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how as a product team, you, you got legal involved so early just because of the constraints in your particular industry. 100%. So I have to ask, I have a few friends in tech who's, who have a guilty pleasure of watching Dr. Phil. Personally, I, I can't do it because for whatever reason, I find it stress-inducing and I have enough stress in my life in tech as it is. But what was it like working with him? It had to be kind of interesting. I mean, he's a celebrity from, uh, I mean, just people just know him, right? I mean, yeah. he's got that fame in kind of the same way Oprah and, and had started out, right? Like that, that whole concept of... Uh, you know, a very particular niche where he's famous. You know, it's amazing. I, I think he's sort of one of the last kind of great American celebrities in, in that, like he was sort of born, like Oprah brought him in, right? And he was born into this television era when there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was no fragmentation. Yeah, right? I think he, of Dr. Phil and Judge Judy as like yeah. a couple of the last two. Yeah, he, he was the only thing on, right? So he gets Super Bowl-like ratings basically every week. Now, it, I think it's impossible for any single person to capture that much of an audience because there's just too many options now, right? It's like you have all the YouTubers and all the TikTokers and, and no one watches TV anymore, right? Broadcast gets the lowest ratings compared to Twitter and YouTube and whatever. So it was amazing to work with him. He was, I, I'm actually not a fan of the show either. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. We we would fly the team down to LA. They, I think they shoot on the Paramount lot. And we were going to do our first on-screen demo of the app. And I had the phone up airplayed to their Jumbotron. This is back when like none of that shit worked, right? It's just iPhones were terrible and like the airplay stuff didn't work. And it was, we were like, it was very, very nerve wracking to like do a live studio audience demo of the app, but that was kind of the only, you know, Phil and Jay were like, look, you got to show the people how it works and you can't fake it. Right. So you just, you know, they're very genuine people. So, so we had the phone all wired up. We had the doctor on the other end, waiting to take the call from someone in the audience and the segment, you know, they do like a, usually a two or three segment show. The segment before the doctor on a man segment was this like insane spousal abuse, like very morbid and sad. Like the woman was crying and like, it was just heartbreaking. And like, so me and the team are sitting in the front row and we're just like almost in tears. Right? It's, it's just this poor, awful story. And I'm just like, man, fuck, why do we have to follow this? You know, And, and so this, <laughs> and we, we did the demo and it worked and it was good. And everybody was, you know, super excited, but I'm like, yeah, this is this, this show can be a bummer sometimes. But look, he does great work. The last thing I'll say is like 
he was like, I didn't interact with him directly a ton, but for a few years, you know, and he has the best work ethic, I think, of anyone I've ever met in my life. And I, I have a pretty strong work ethic myself. And he, you know, he doesn't drink, he doesn't, you know, smoke. He's like a complete, just focused on success, focused on making a difference, focused on changing the world, helping people, you know, and he's just, you know, he's a machine. He's been doing that show for 20 something seasons now. And, you know, he's just like, he's not joking around with you. Right. He's just like an NFL coach. And uh, it was it was a little scary at times, but you know, I, I have so much respect for him and his son, Jay. Yeah. I, I mean, talk to me about the impact. Like, you know, a lot of people, I see celebrities speaking at product conferences and I've talked to some of the, the people that run them and then, you know, they're not entirely sure how much that impacts attendance, but in your case, endorsement from Dr. Phil, doctors on demand, how much did that drive uptick in the application? Like, how did you, how did you quantify it? And how big was that impact? So look, I, I don't think we would have been as successful as we were without him. I mean, I can categorically say that. I think our first three or 4 million consumers came from that channel. We did eventually wear it out. You know, eventually like you got to take insurance, you got to get it, you know, we signed Walmart and United Healthcare and Comcast and Home Depot to offer to their employees and their members. And, and it ended up about three, four years in, it, it ended up a dual strategy, consumer and enterprise. And it turns out the better you are at one, the easier the other becomes. So it was a very controversial thing at the time. My board gave me a lot of shit about it. It ended up working. I wasn't the right guy to fully execute it. We brought in my friend, Hill Ferguson, who took the ball the next four years. I stayed very close to the company, the large shareholder still. Uh, now it's merged with a company called Grand Rounds. So it's, it's kind of this like digital health giant now, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue. But those early days, we couldn't have done it without them. It was, I think, a rare case actually of a successful celebrity endorsement. And I've seen plenty of cases where it makes no sense, right? Where, you know, you get Ashton Kutcher to tweet about you. It's like, who gives a shit, right? Like his audience doesn't care about your app. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about brain trust because I think you're doing some really exciting things there. And it's a different way of approaching a marketplace and a problem. So, well, first let's start about, you know, what big problems are you solving at brain trust? Yeah, for sure. So, so I'll, I'll back up a second and, and sort of like reveal the dirty little secret I've realized about web two enabled marketplaces. So think like from, you know, eBay, Yelp, all the way up to the kind of the gig economy companies now that, you know, the playbook for those companies. And I, look, I've been building them my whole life and investing in them. Like, I know I've been part of the problem here and now I'm trying to be part of the solution. So, so the playbook for those companies is, you know, you come up with an idea, you raise probably billions of dollars in venture capital. You use that capital to subsidize one or both sides of the network until you can build liquidity, right? Gets lots of buyers, lots of sellers. And then you come out the other end with an investor-owned network, right? Like where does all that money come from? Comes from VCs. And those investors that then need a return, rightfully so, right? They were the risk capital that, that took a chance. And so where does that return come from? Comes from the rake. And the rake goes up and up and up. By, by rake, I mean the percentage of every transaction that's taken by the company as a fee. And so when the rake keeps going up, the incentives between the users who make their living on the network and the folks who own and operate the network start to diverge, right? And you see this in the gig economy where the drivers uh, on Uber complain about the cut, the dashers and restaurants absolutely hate DoorDash, right? They're just abysmal economics. And so when those incentives diverge, your network effects that were so hard-earned start to erode, 
There's a now huge incentive to disintermediate the network, and you've left yourself open for disruption. And for years, I was trying to figure out what is that disruption going to look like, right? Because like I saw for years, restaurants hate Yelp, but they can't get off of it, right? Or you know, sellers try to go around eBay, but it kind of doesn't work. And you know, good luck getting around Uber, right? And so then came blockchain tech and this idea of tokens replacing shares of stock and basically making the corporation, the profit-seeking corporation obsolete, right? So instead of a profit-seeking corporation in the middle that you know connects buyers and sellers, creates a trusted place to transact and then takes a big fee, you have this network where people can just transact peer-to-peer and the fees are de minimis, right? And so you know, stocks are profit return mechanism, profit extraction and profit return dividend mechanisms. Tokens are just trust mechanisms, right? There's no extraction. It's not a profit return. There's no dividend, right? There's no, it's, it's not a corporate entity. So it's a totally different way of organizing people to connect buyers and sellers. And so to me, that was the big breakthrough with Ethereum, right? You could program a token to represent ownership and control in a network. And so this became sort of a, a token economic theory that I was looking to deploy capital into while I was uh, a GP at Cambrian, the fund I helped start. And um, this is in 2017, 2018. There was really just nobody doing it. And so we decided, you know, let's create what we're calling a user-owned network and let's see if it can work. And our big theory there was that user-owned networks would grow faster and become more valuable to their users than investor-owned networks, simply because you can take that 30, 40, 50% rake, bring it to zero. And so that's what we did with Braintrust. And, and we had to pick a category. So we said, well, instead of starting with ride sharing, which is super hard and it's offline, let's start with connecting knowledge workers, like designers, developers, product managers with gigs, like super interesting freelance gigs, like building software for Nike or Goldman Sachs or Nestle or Porsche. So that's where we started back in 2018. And we've grown like a pretty big marketplace in the last few years. Yeah. So I have two threads I want to dig on. I don't know which one you want to talk about first, but one would be governance at Brain Trust, And then the second would be more about the market you're going after and how, you know, it's kind of the future of work. And what does that mean to you? Which one should we take first? Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll touch quickly on the market and then we can do a deep dive on, on yeah, governance. Tell me about governance, you know, because you're talking about this as like a community-owned network or a user-owned network. Absolutely. So think about, let's just compare Web 2 and Web 3, right? Old and new. So governance in a traditional web-enabled marketplace is decided by the corporation, right? So if it's, let, we're, we're all knowledge workers here. So let's talk about Upwork or Fiverr. You know, like disputes are handled by the corporation. Clients always win, right? We all know that. Fees are decided by the corporation and who bears those fees also decided by the corporation. Spoiler alert, talent always pays the fees and they go up every year. (laughs) No secret. And if you're finding work on one of those marketplaces, you're giving away 20, 30, 40 plus percent of your income, you know, to this corporation in the middle and you have no say. You're, in fact, in Upwork's terms of service, that actually your work history on Upwork is their intellectual property, amazingly. So that's the old way of doing things, and and it's not very friendly to the talent, and it's like not it's not a great experience to clients either, right? Because clients now have to like 
trudge through all these people who are trying to spam them just to get them off the platform, right? There's that disintermediation factor again, which is a strong motivation. People bid super low, win the job, pull the job, the client off the platform. Oh, That's and like the costs are higher for the clients too, right? It, I mean, they exactly. end up being- Yeah, for every dollar they're spending, they're getting what, 50, 60 I mean, cents You can more. see that in restaurants and DoorDash, right? So. 100%, 100%. So look, it's just like, it's the old way of doing things. It's, it's sort of normal for us today, but it- it will go away. And so the new way of doing things is you set up, you know, you get your talent together, you build software that connects them with clients, reputation and work history are all built into the software. It's totally transparent. No one's trying to hide it. There's no walled gardens because you're owned by your users. You have no incentive to charge your users fees. So we take a zero rake from the talent and a flat 10% fee to clients, which is just meant to sustain the network, right? It just keeps the lights on. And so um, now what you've done is you've created this like low fee marketplace where now very large and interesting and ongoing projects can transact on this marketplace, right? So I'll just give you real examples. Like Porsche is developing in-dash software for their cars as a gig on brain trust. Now, and this is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a month being transacted. They would never pay Upwork fees for that, right? Like that job would never touch Upwork. And so, and great talent are never going to give a big piece of their income away to a marketplace provider. So by lowering fees, you've enabled a whole new class of of amazing transactions. And then, so look, where's governance come in? So it's one token, one vote. There are no shares of stock. There's no corporate entity on Braintrust. It's a nonprofit tokenized network, just like Ethereum or Bitcoin. And the only way to get tokens is by helping us build the network. So invite talent, onboard talent. Invite clients, onboard those clients, serve uh, as a community ambassador to help grow the talent network. I mean, just dozens of things like, you know, help, uh, you know, spread your invite code so people sign up. And then when those folks sign up with your invite code and they start transacting on Brain Trust, you'll earn a percentage of what they transact in the form of the Brain Trust token. And so you start accruing these tokens in proportion to the amount of value you've added to building the network. And so that's how we've grown this quickly without any salespeople, you know, barely any marketing, you know, we have like 20 people on the core team and it's like, instead, you know, we have now tens of thousands of people in our community that hold brain trust tokens that have a vested interest in brain trust succeeding because that's where they make their living. And then the way you upgrade the network or change the rules is token holders can propose something on our governance portal, say like, we should get into you know video editing category next, or we should change the fee structure for clients or talent, or you know some other, or we should change how payments work so people get get paid differently. Any anything a corporation would decide can now be just proposed as a governance proposal by token holders, and then voted on by token holders, up or down. Hmm. That's all really interesting. Now, what's the corporate structure of Brain Trust? Uh, there is no corporation. Brain Trust is a protocol on Ethereum. It lives on Ethereum. It is maintained and contributed to by dozens or hundreds of individuals and corporations that kind of like, you know, make their like, I, I have a company called Freelance Labs that is a software development shop and we do jobs on Brain Trust. So we have a vested interest in in helping build Brain Trust. So we're a for-profit, our, our little company here in California, but the Brain Trust network itself it's a nonprofit. It's what we call in economic terms, like a public good. So it's just like Ethereum, right? Ethereum is a platform 
for a global platform for smart contracts. Uniswap is a global platform for trading tokens in a decentralized way. Braintrust is a global decentralized platform for connecting knowledge workers with gigs. So leads to the the other thread I was going to go down, future of work. What does it mean to you? I mean, I, I think I have some idea how you're going to answer this, but. Yeah, I, I, look, I think future of knowledge work, I think more and more broadly, you know, future of most work is independent, independent contractors. I think when you can keep all of the value you create on a two-sided marketplace, it can become sustainable for you to be independent. Uh, that's true if you're an Uber driver or a DoorDasher or you know a UI designer or product manager freelance on BrainTrust. I think we're going to see knowledge work. I'll just talk about knowledge workers because that's where BrainTrust plays for now. I think we're going to see, well, we, are, we certainly already are seeing knowledge workers sort of unbundle out of corporate America. Like I think the Wall Street Journal has been calling this like the great resignation. This is where folks are like, you know what? We can all work remotely now. We don't need to go back in the office. And any company that tries to make us go back in the office is, is probably not going to retain their best and brightest. And so um, we can unwind out of these expensive cities that we never really wanted to live in, in a be- to begin with. And we can do our work from where we want, for whom we want, at full market rates. And so we're actually seeing an influx. We have been seeing you now since covid at Brain Trust of, of really skilled and experienced knowledge workers coming out of tech companies and being freelancers because you know it's a better lifestyle. There's more freedom and like they are they're always surprised they end up making more money too. And so this is the beginning of this trend and I don't I don't see it reversing anytime soon. Yeah, how do you think this? I mean, going down a whole nother you know rabbit hole, but impact on cities like San Francisco and New York, uh, you know, both remote work and the future of work, how is that going to impact some of these places? Well, I, th- I think it's going to create this phenomenon where people can live where they want <laughs> instead of living where they have to, right? Like I'm from the Bay Area and this is famously a part of the country where a lot of people live here because they feel like they have to, right? Because they have to be proximate to HQ and Mountain View or HQ and SOMA. And, you know, I, I think now like you can live where you choose. And that means, so, so like, I don't think it's going to be the demise of cities. I mean, it'll be the demise of San Francisco because San Francisco wants and is actively trying to destroy itself right now, but uh, <laughs> and it will likely succeed from what I can tell. But um, like places like New York, New York's a great city, like people who want to live in New York will live there now, not because they have to. And then folks, you know, who want to live in a smaller town, you know, and have that feel will have the the freedom to do that. So I just think it's, it's just better for society in general. Like it's just more autonomy. Yeah. Interesting. So community, like how is that? I imagine this has a pretty big impact on how you're building product, right? I mean, you were just talking about some of the governance and the voting structure. It's impacting the brain trust network as a product too, whether you just think about, well, however you think about that. So talk to me about how communities has impacted the building of the product at brain trust. Yeah. So the early product was just kind of built by, you know, there's five of us now, six core teams that kind of all were just kind of chipping in. And and we, we built the MVP. We got the MVP out there last year. And now in the last year, the story has been very much community driven. Right. And it's and, and now we just, you know, we just started decentralize the network last week. We're on mainnet now, Ethereum. And like now it's like officially community driven. And so what's been cool about that is it's been not just like UI, UX, like good product product managers are always going to get user feedback that way, right? Like that's kind of like table stakes these days. Now it's like, hey, what's the roadmap? 
Like, where are we actually going to spend our resources? So I'll give you an example. Like there's a, uh, a proposal winding its way through governance right now in our discord that a community member proposed, and we've actually never heard of this person before. It's just kind of a new person. And, and he said, um, you know, it's a real bummer when you do a job for a client or you send the first invoice and they don't pay you. And you go through, we have community-led dispute resolution. So it's like, it's not, there's no company deciding who's right. Actually, the community elects jurors and they get paid tokens to kind of adjudicate the matter. But like, let's say it's decided in, in favor of the talent, but the client just still doesn't pay, right? It's actually super rare on brain trust. But as we get bigger, it'll, it'll become a bigger issue, right? And so this person proposed, why don't we build like a talent insurance fund? And so, you know, you'll have this little pocket of money that gets set aside and we'll have to decide how it gets funded. But if someone ever gets stiffed, you know, they'll be made whole here. And then there, you know, there's other people talking about let's provide group health insurance and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, these are things that if we were some centralized corporation, you know, we'd be like, eh, it's not really our business. And we'd probably just kind of move on. And now that's community controlled. It's like, okay, this is a feature that like clearly there's community and support for, but the community is also going to have to vote and decide how it gets paid for. Right. And so it's it kind of this cool dynamic of, you know, making decisions that are going to benefit, you know, all of those folks who make their living on brain trust. Yeah. It's interesting. So if you're a product leader out there listening to this podcast and you're thinking about like, you know, all the stuff you're talking about, about the impact of community, what should they think about? Like, how should they think about community's impacts on products? What can they learn from a community-run product organization like you have there? Well, look, I, I would back up and say, like, incentives matter the most, right? So think about, well, unfortunately, what, what can happen in some products is the incentives of the corporation that pays the product managers may be divergent from the incentives of the community that use that product. Not always, right? I mean, I think there's products like Pendo, like there's some really great products out there that like, it's easy to keep incentives aligned because like the more your community and your users love your product, the better your corporation does. Like that, that certainly can be the case, but you know, not always, right? <laughs> what if a corporation is like, you know what, we're going to introduce uh, three new paid tiers and, you know, we're going to chop out, we're going to slice out features and make this thing harder to use and until we get you to the $900 a month tier. Well, look, the community is not going to like that, right? You're going, you now have you know, misaligned incentives. And so it, that makes the job tough for a product manager, right? So it's like, oh, I don't, you know, we don't want to like piss people off. So, so I would say like, just do everything you can to like get inside the head of the, the power users and see like, hey, okay, maybe if, if our job as a corporation is to charge more, what more value can we give and bundle in here that would make these people happy to pay instead of mad about paying, right? Because there is such a thing as happy to pay. So that's always been my North Star is like, get people happy to pay. Yeah, I think that's a great North Star to have. I mean, Especially if, you know, the, the struggle you have when you're talking about marketplaces, who's your primary constituent, right? And some of the SaaS companies, it's easier. Like if your goal is to make product managers' lives better, then you have to make them happy to pay, right? That you're making a big enough impact that you're taking a piece of that, that impact, that improvement on how they build, launch, you know, manage and grow, scale, you know, product companies. So interesting. So, you know, we're talking about these new models, business and tech. How do you think it's going to impact how we build products and deliver value in the long term. Yeah, I, I think, look, I'm a little biased here, so I'll, I'll start with that. But look, I, I really believe in this user-owned network 
being very disruptive to investor-owned networks. So, so I think the two can coexist on some level. I, I think the amazing thing about tokens, blockchain tokens, is you can get your users and your community involved in ownership and control of your network via these tokens. I'll give you an example, right? So Reddit is um, rolling out ERC-20 Ethereum-based tokens on some of its subreddits. I believe the Bitcoin one and maybe like one of the video game ones or something. And these tokens are granted to folks who are like good denizens on those subreddits, right? They contribute a lot. They Maybe they help moderate. They're not trolls, right? They're actually making the Reddit more valuable and they're earning tokens, you know, presumably programmatically for those contributions. And then potentially someday like those tokens, you know, will have either cash value or, or utility on Reddit. I, I'm not sure exactly what Reddit's plan there is, but like, that's an interesting way of like, oh, you're now like, now your users have some skin in the game, right? So I think all product managers who who have vibrant communities need to start thinking about how to get those communities to get some skin in the game and you know blockchain based tokens are just an incredible way to do that yeah yeah that is interesting i i think it gives a lot of product managers something to think about like how they incentivize grow their communities and, and frankly strengthen their communities because this is a way to strengthen an existing community that you might have yeah, it could build loyalty. It could, you know, think about what badging did. Remember badging like 10, 15 years ago? That was like the the magic wand of all products was, I'll just throw badges in, you know? And it's like, okay, well, well that'll get you so far, but tokens are the new badging, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's beyond just that social cred, so to speak. I mean, and you can think of, you know, Reddit gold, et cetera. And, and it's an interesting next step to some of that. Yeah. Well, this has been fun. You know, let's talk a little bit about you. What's your favorite product? You know, I love this question because like, it's so hard to answer. And I, I kind of hate my answer sometimes, but it's, it's Google photos has been my favorite product for years. I just think they've, they've nailed it. It's the only good photo sharing and photo collection app out there, in my opinion. But before that, you know, I was a huge fan of path. Do you remember path Dave Moore and social network? I thought they did yep. such a beautiful job. And, uh, you know, so I just, I love elegant mobile UI. Yeah, yeah. So final question for you today, three words to describe yourself. Uh, so I would say in maybe in order, curious, passionate, and impatient. Well, thanks, this has been great. Appreciate it, Adam. Eric, uh, a big fan of the podcast and it was a, a pleasure to be a guest and thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.